glad you're here today. If you're joining us online, thanks for being with us and, uh, and, and uh, joining us for worship. We've been in a series for the last uh, four or five weeks now called Prove It, and we've got a couple more weeks to go, but we're in the book of 1 John. That's the, the idea of this series was to just look at a, a New Testament letter and, and work our way through it, and so we've been doing that. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip over to 1 John. We're going to be in a couple different passages today. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, one of the things I wanted to just point out today is that, you know, one of the things that you realize if you have friends with, or if you're friends with people from different religious backgrounds, and I, and I hope that you are, is that there's often a moment where you begin to realize that what you believe about Jesus necessarily has implications for your friends and your relationships with those people. I mean, think about this, and maybe this is the moment where you have, you know, this, today's your moment where you think about this. But if you have friends who have a different set of religious beliefs, what you believe about Jesus has implications for what you think about them and how you interact with them and what their eternal situation might look like, right? I mean, sometimes we, we don't think about this, but it does. It, it has major implications if, if we believe in Jesus, right? And we have friends that don't. And so when we have that moment of realization, when it kind of clicks to me, oh, my friends, they don't believe the same things that I believe, it leads to all sorts of questions and, and asking of all sorts of questions, deep questions about how we live out our Christian convictions in a world that doesn't often share the same point of view. Questions like this, you know, in a world where there are so many different people and all of those people have different views, how could it be possible that one view is greater than the other? I mean, that's a fair question, isn't it? And, you know, questions like, is there really one way, one path that leads to God? Isn't believing in God enough? That Does what we believe about Jesus really even make that much of a difference? The, these are some of the questions that, that we ask that in, in our world and in our culture, but it's also the same questions that John addresses in the, part, in the portion of 1 John that we come to today. So, so we're going to try to look at some of those today. But before we dig in, <clears throat> excuse me, I just want to take us a moment to remind us of where we've been at so far on our journey. Because for the last several weeks, again, we've been looking at this, at this letter uh, that the Apostle John wrote. And it's a very simple letter. It's, it's one of three letters that he wrote to the church. And remember, he's writing this about 50 years after Jesus lived. And the basic premise of his letter is, is very simple. You're either living life or you're not. You're either living the deep life that, that is made possible by Jesus or you're missing out on it. One, one, uh, one life leads to light and, and, and leads to, to life and the other leads to darkness and isolation. And right from the very beginning of this letter, John connects this life, this deep life, this, this deep living with Jesus. He says this in chapter 1. He said, the life appeared and we have seen it and we have testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim it to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Again, remember, many of his readers, they're two or three generations removed from the historical Jesus. And so they're beginning to question whether they are living the life of a, of a believer or not, of a follower of Jesus. Because remember, they didn't see Jesus. They didn't touch Him. They didn't hear Him. They didn't, they didn't witness all of the miracles that maybe their grandparents or their great-grandparents saw. You know, it's easy for those people who, who, who saw Jesus. You know, I think if I was there and I saw the miracles that Jesus performed, yeah, I'd be, I'd be a better follower of Jesus, right? Because, hey, I saw it. You know, if I saw Him die and then three days later I saw Him living, 
that that would convince me. And, and again, you've heard me say this before too. The whole reason that we follow Jesus, uh, the whole reason that we follow Jesus more than any other person is because he predicted his death. He died and he predicted his resurrection and he came back to life. If you can predict your death and you can predict your resurrection and you can pull it off, I'll believe you too. Right? That's the whole reason because he, he said he was going to do it and he did it. And so in this letter, John suggests that there are three tests that anyone can, can apply to their own life to determine whether or not they are really living the life of, of a Christian. They're really living that deep life, that, that life of a believer. And the first test is the ethical test. And for the last couple of weeks, that's, that's what we've been drilling down on, uh, this question of, of how do you live? Do, do you have a deep walk, a, a walk of obedience? Have you experienced that, that forgiveness and, and that fresh start? Do you have a deep desire, a desire to love the goodness of God more than the things of the world? The second is the relational test. You know, how do you love? And we're going to talk about that test in, in a couple of weeks. The, the third test is the doctrinal test. You know, what do you believe? And this is the test of our passage that we come to today. And what I hope that we'll discover today is that to, to, to live the deep life, or as we've been saying, to prove it, is to be rooted in the grounded and grounded in deep truth. Deep truth ha has everything to do with our understanding of who Jesus is. And at the time that John wrote this letter, there was a crisis going on in the church. There were those who were leading people away from what Jesus had taught about himself. And the nature of their false teaching is, is found in these verses. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. John writes this, he says, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Again, what's, what's he call that person? Uh, the person that denies that Jesus is Christ, he calls him a liar. And, and in our culture, we don't think that's a big deal, right? But, but it is. It's a big deal to call somebody a liar. We don't let our kids go around calling other people liars. We, we say, no, 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 you, you don't call people that. It's a big deal to call somebody a liar. Then in verse uh, chapter 4, John says this. He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But then notice this. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. These teachers that were, were denying that Jesus was God in the flesh as he claimed to be. Jesus made a lot of claims about who he was and, and these these teachers, these false teachers who had infiltrated the church, they were saying, no, Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh. There was a certain brand of teaching at this time that argued that Jesus was really just a person. And at the time of his baptism, the, he became inhabited by the Spirit of God. When the dove, you know, the Spirit of God, it says, like a dove, we, I think we kind of confuse that sometimes that it was a dove, but it says, like a dove descended upon him. Uh, they're saying that at that moment, the Spirit of God came into his body, but God's Spirit left him before he was crucified. They, they believe that for God to, to connect himself with the material world, with our world, with human beings, with suffering, would somehow diminish his value. It would diminish his value as God. That, that coming down to earth was, was beyond his station. And John's reply to this false teaching, it's very clear, it's very definitive, and it's filled with conviction. To abandon Jesus' claim of divinity is to let go of the possibility of living the life that God has for you. Understand that and hear that. To abandon Jesus' claim of divinity, that he is fully God and he's also fully human, is to let go of the possibility 
of living the life that God has for you. The incarnation, Jesus in the flesh, is the deep truth that John would urge his followers to, to keep at the very center of their faith and keep at the very center of their lives. And honestly, it's, it's the same thing that I would urge you with, that to, to know who Jesus is, that he is fully God, but he's also fully human, is center to our faith. It is center to everything else that we believe. It, it's kind of the, the core that holds everything else together. Because if we don't believe that Jesus is fully God or that he was fully human, then anything else we believe really doesn't matter. Because it will all fall apart if we don't hold to this one central teaching, this one central truth that Jesus is fully God, but also fully human. You know, we've got neighbors that live all around us, especially if, you know, in bigger cities. So maybe, you know, you go to E-Town and E-Town's become a, a diverse place. And, and I'm not saying diversity is bad, but... but there are a lot of people now that have a lot of different views. Um, no longer is Christianity the, the majority opinion in the, in the United States. And so if you just look around, you know, even in Glendale to some extent, there's a lot of different views about a lot of different things. There's different views about God and salvation and religion. There, there are Muslims and Hindus and, and atheists and agnostics and Catholics and Protestants. And so you've got all of these groups that come together, right? They all live together. We all live in community with these people. And so how do we reconcile what we believe against what they believe? And how do we reconcile what we believe in, in, in life with how they believe? What, what do we do about that? What are, we, what are we to do when we have this view of Jesus, that He is fully God and He's fully human? How do we continue to hold such a view when it puts us at odds with other people? And with other views who are who are surrounded surrounding us, how do how do we how do we operate in this life, holding on to our Christian convictions when when there are so many people around us who don't believe that, who who would actually say just the opposite that they would say that Jesus isn't God, that that he's not God at all, and there are some that would even deny the the existence of a historical Jesus as a person. They'd say he didn't really exist. How do we reconcile and do life together with those people? Well, I think we should follow John's lead here. And I want to offer you a counterintuitive suggestion. Rather than softening our, our view about the distinctive claims of, of who Jesus is, rather than convincing ourselves to just place Jesus to the side of, of our beliefs, and maybe I think we should consider more carefully this deep truth of, of who Jesus is and what Jesus really means to us. I think maybe we should embrace it more deeply. I would suggest that the more we discover about Jesus the more beautiful a truth the incarnation becomes. Believing that God became a man isn't a selfish and exclusive claim intended to put people off. It's not. It's actually a very generous and loving claim that holds out the best possible hope for, for humanity and the world. Hear that. Believing that Jesus is fully God and fully human isn't designed to push people away. It is, it is the best hope for all of mankind for all of the world, that there was actually a God who loved you, who saw the plight of our world, became flesh, became one of us, dwelt among us, and died for your sins to, to be able to redeem you. That's, that's not intended to push people away. It's intended to bring people back to Him. And so I want us to consider more deeply three implications of this core truth of the fully human, fully divine Jesus. I've got a friend, a preacher friend, who shared a story recently with me about a woman that he knew. And all of her life, she'd been on this desperate search to hear from God. 
you know, throughout the span of time in history, everybody has had this longing, this yearning to, to, to hear from God, to, to know that God exists, to be able to prove it somehow. And so this woman, not, not any different from anybody else. But she wanted so dearly to, to hear God reveal himself to her that, that she wanted you know, him to speak to her, to have an experience that was an undeniable experience that God loved her, that God had proved that he was real to her, that, that he was present with her. And so one weekend she went on a, on a spiritual retreat of some sorts with some other seekers to, to this beautiful retreat center. And it was at the top of this mountain and, and it was just beautiful. And in her desperation to, to hear God and, and find God, she found herself one morning just sitting on her balcony and overlooking this just beautiful view of the mountains. And, and she thought, you know, if God is going to speak to me, it's going to be a, in a place like this. It's going to be in a setting like this because, of course, God only speaks to us in those beautiful, serene moments, right? That's kind of what we think. And so she waited with great anticipation. And then she finally heard a voice speak to her. And the voice said to her, who in the heck do you think you are? Only the voice used much stronger language than that. And when she, when she thought that she heard this, when she comprehended what she had heard, she was devastated. She walked away feeling broken and defeated. She felt like she had finally heard from God and what she had heard was that God wanted nothing to do with her. She, she felt a fool for even entertaining the thought that he might want to spend time with her to, to let her know who he was. How many people hold that view of God? That God is distant and aloof, that, that he's not interested in, in our lives, that he's not interested in us as people. That Kind of like a, like a busy father who, who's so um, overwhelmed with, with work and all the busy and important things that, that he, he's a part of, that he just kind of brushes by his kids and, and he just doesn't pay any attention to them, even though they're starving for a relationship with him. How many people view God like that? This is why Jesus came to earth. Why God sent himself to dwell among us. In, in Jesus' life, and recorded for us in the Gospels, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. More than most any other historical person uh, that lived you know, 2,000 years ago. And, and you know, think about this. More than, we know more about the life of Jesus than we do any Roman emperor. More about Jesus' life than we know about uh, any Greek philosopher. And we all take what, that their lives as true and historical and accurate. So, so I'm just telling you, we have more evidence about the life of Jesus than any of those people. And in his Gospels, in the Gospels, we have this unbelievable opportunity to see what God is really like. Through Jesus' words, we learn what God would say to us in certain scenarios that he found himself in. Through his actions, we can see what's important to, to God. By, by his loving relationships, we can see the heart of God. We can see his heart for people, and, and, and we can see his heart for forgiveness and to embrace people. We can see God who is ready to embrace us, stoop down to, to humble himself to our level, to let us know who he is. In, in the person of Jesus, think about this, in the person of Jesus, God speaks directly, acts visibly, and shows publicly just how he feels about humanity, just how he feels about us. N.T. Wright put it perfectly. He said, Jesus provides the exegesis of God. Dare to shape your vision of God around the person of Jesus. He's saying, look and read the Gospels. And the person that you find there, that's God. That's what God thinks about. That's what God. That's how God would act. That's how you know the heart of God. If you look to the Gospels and you see Jesus, you will find the heart of God. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. In John's Gospel, he says this, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father and that the Father is in me? 
The worlds I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is my Father living in me who is doing His work. When, when you grab and hold on to that truth that Jesus is God, you realize that God is revealing Himself to you, to us. Be- because of my understanding of, of, of Jesus, I've never heard God say to me, who the heck do you think you are? I want to be clear, I've never heard God audibly speak to me at all. But, but I've never heard God Say, who the heck do you think you are? Because in Christ I see a God who is willing to go to the gates of hell and back for me. Through Jesus, God shows us who he is. Now, here's where the problem comes in. Because there's a problem with our ability to relate to God. Renelle this morning, as, as they were ending their practice time, she, she was leading the, the worship team in prayer. And she, she said in her prayer, God, we want you to be comprehensible. We, we want to be able to comprehend you, but that, that's a problem because if we have a God who's com- that we can comprehend, then he's not God. And that, that's a problem for us is the, the ability to relate to God. The problem is, is that God is just. The, the, and that's not a problem, is it? Because we want a God who, who hungers for justice. We, when we see people who have been mistreated and abused, and we desire to see them get justice. We, we desi- desire to see justice meted out against those who have abused and mistreated people. We call it righteous indignation. Right? We, have, we, we are fired up about certain issues, and we want to see these people get what they deserve. So God's justice is a good thing. The problem is that if complete justice prevails, eventually that gavel is going to fall on me and you too. When, when we're completely honest with ourselves, we know that all of our selfishness and all of our sinfulness has contributed to the problems of the world. And of course, this is where Jesus comes in again. This is where God in the flesh makes all of the difference. As a man, Jesus was the only person to live a perfect life. And as God, Jesus was the only one who would be qualified to bear the burden of, of the sin of all of humanity. He's the only one whose sacrifice would be complete and sufficient. There, there would be nobody else. If, if I died for your sins, guess what? You'd still go to hell. Because my, my sacrifice is just not going to be good enough. It's just not. I am too sinful of a person. Mike Bell is too sinful of a person to, to be your sacrifice. But Jesus wasn't. And he's not. Jesus is the only person whose sacrifice would be complete and sufficient. It's on the cross where God's justice was met by something that he could only offer us. His divine love. You realize that at the cross, love and justice marry each other. And in Christ, at that moment, a door of invitation opened. A bridge between God and man had been made possible by the man, by the God, Jesus. Did you know that in this auditorium, there is not a place that you can sit where you won't be able to see one of the three crosses that are back here? Did you know that? I don't know if you knew that. Maybe you've been sitting in the same spot for a long time and you only thought there was one cross because that's the only one you can see. But, but there is not a place in this auditorium where you can sit where you won't be able to see one of those three crosses. And it was done intentionally. It was designed that way. Because it's the cross of Jesus that illustrates the deep love that God has for us. The cross was God's way of proving to you exactly what He thinks about you. And, and what He thinks about you is that He loves you enough and He loves me enough. That he would go to a cross, a cruel cross, and bear all of the sins of the world. That it's, it's at the cross where Jesus shows that there's not an end that he wouldn't go through to see us not be redeemed. 1 John 4, 9-10 sums it up perfectly. John writes this, he says, This is how God showed his love among us. That he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
Then he says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's provision of Jesus makes us able to be with him. Through Jesus, through Jesus, God is inviting us to be with him. You know, if you do a brief uh, overview of all of the religions of the world, you'll discover that there are a couple of different views, three actually primary views of the material world, the world that we live in. The, the first view is this, is that the world is an illusion. This view holds that the goal of religious life, of, of enlightenment or salvation or whatever you want to call it, has little to do or nothing to do with the actual material world. Rather, the goal is just to disregard the physical realm altogether and, and get in touch with your spiritual nature, with your spiritual side. And so for some, this means the consequences of their physical actions are meaningless. You're, you're just free to do whatever you want because in the end, your flesh doesn't matter. So, so it's meaningless. A second view of the material world is that the world is bad, that the material world is bad. This view holds that the goal of religious life is to withdraw from the world because there's no hope to be found in it. The physical world is on its way to destruction, and so if you're, if you're entangled with it, if you're tied to it, if you're connected with, with life and the things of this world, you're going to be tainted by that evil. And so ultimately you're going to be led to destruction as well. Those are some glim views of life, isn't it, and of the world. Luckily, there's a third view, though. There's a third view of the material world, and it's the one that John, uh, that becomes John's view of Jesus. A Jesus who fully enters into a real physical existence. Th- this view holds that the material world is actually good. Uh, you know, go back to the, the account of creation in Genesis, and what did God say after he created all of the world? After each day, he said it was good. It was good that the physical world is good. It's a, it was a place created to be where God's glory is put on display. The, the beauty and the joy and the rich relationships that, that are possible are all indications of God's goodness and the goodness of, of the one who created it. And with salvation comes a, a deep appreciation and affirmation and engagement with the world and, and the ways that it aligns with its intended purposes. But the truth is, is that none of us get very far in this material world before bumping up against a reminder that all is not right with this world. That the material world is not always a place of beauty and goodness. I mean, despite how much beauty and goodness exist in the world, the truth is that the world, the world that we live in contains something very wrong. There, there's something wrong with creation. You know, accidents happen, sickness happens, it, it threatens our lives. Violence and oppression uh, cause people to be displaced, and, and even worse, there's, there's the toil of hard labor and, and the, the frustration of limited resources. Natural disasters strike, and it leaves people without food and water and shelter. And, and all of these things are just, are just reminders that something is not right in our created world. And once again, Jesus enters into the picture. He's not afraid to enter into this world fully getting his hands dirty. He doesn't shy away from it or live like the physical world is is an illusion. What What do you see Jesus do? He takes broken things and begins fixing them. Legs that can't walk, he restores them and makes them able to walk. Eyes that can't see, he touches them and gives sight to them. Stomachs that are growling with hunger, he feeds with food. What, what we discover is that through Jesus, God is working to bring all of the pieces that, uh, of this broken creation back together in order to make this world right again. What we discover is that God is working through Jesus to make this world right. And it's through the work of Jesus that God is not throwing away creation. He's not. He's redeeming 
creation. Think about that. God isn't getting rid of creation. He's trying to redeem it. He's not disposing of it. In Christ, he's liberating the world of its hold on sin and death. And when Jesus rises from the dead, what kind of body does he have? He has a physical body, one that's been restored. The message of the gospel is that God will do with the entire world what he did with Jesus at Easter. That's the gospel. You see, Jesus' physical resurrection assures us that a new creation is indeed underway. In Christ, everything gets brought back together. The restoration that Jesus can do in a human heart, the, the forgiveness of sin, it has implications for the physical world as well. Jesus is restoring all of creation so that once again it will be fully cooperative and, and, and an active demonstration of the glory of God. And so there's a lot at stake when, when we consider the deep truth that Jesus is God. So much hinges on that fundamental reality. Our ability to understand God, our, our potential to relate to a God who loves us, and our hopes for the redemption of the world that we live in. All of those things are at stake based on, on our understanding of who Jesus is. And so that brings us back to the question we posed at, at the beginning of this message. What do we do when we realize that we believe something very different than what those around us believe. What do we do then? What do we do when people misunderstand and misconstrue who Jesus is and what he's done? I would suggest that if you love the people around you deeply, and I'm going to just make an assumption that there are people in your life that you love deeply that are around you, I'm going to suggest that we show them the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. Do you remember back in 2010 when the Chilean miners were, were trapped? You know, they had that big you know, collapse in the mine shaft, and, and there were 33 uh, miners that were trapped a half a mile underground. They were in confined darkness for 69 days. I remember watching the news coverage, probably like many of you did, and, and it was incredible to me that they were able to rescue all 33 of them, that they were all... All of them made it back out safe and alive and healthy and all of that thing and all of that stuff. Um, and it was just incredible to watch that one by one, each miner would make his journey through a 36-inch passageway from the depths of a cold cave that had entombed them for over two months into light, into the vast open skies. Now, with that in mind, think about this. Imagine that you were the group leader of those 33 trap miners. For months, you've been trying to find a way out. You've been trying to find an escape. You've checked every side channel. You've explored all the safety shafts. And no matter what path you've explored, you've still found yourself trapped. There's seemingly no way out. And now, standing right before your eyes is a hole that's been cut from the surface. And a caged rescue capsule's been lowered into that hole from above to take you to safety. And a few miners, they've actually gotten in and they've gone up the, up the shaft and they've been... They've been rescued, and you're hearing reports of that, that they have made it out safely. They've made it all the way back to the top. Now, how would you feel if someone began to spread stories to your friends, your other co-workers there, the other miners, that that basket, that rescue basket, was unreliable? That the means of escape through that route was unimpressive or somehow unbelievable? What would you do? Out of concern for... For the safety of all of your friends, you would do what you could, right, to, to persuade them that this way is certain. That this way is the only way to life. That you can stay down here and you're going to live in darkness and you will eventually die. But if you get in that capsule, if you get in that cage, eventually you're going to get to the top and you're going to have life. 
and you're going to live life in the open and in the light. You would, you would do whatever you could, right, to make sure that they got into that rescue capsule. And there's no way that you would leave them down there. You just wouldn't, would you? There's no way you would, you would leave uh, one of your fellow miners, your co-workers behind. You wouldn't leave them down in that cave. What do we do when our friends challenge our beliefs about who Jesus is? Especially when we understand more fully the rescue that he provides, not just for us, but for all of humanity and for all of the world. We find ways to make him known more. To make him known more clearly. We describe more carefully and clearly who he, who he is and, and why he's become so dear to us. We tell our story about how he has rescued us from the depths of hell. How he's rescued us from sin and, how, and darkness. And how we now live in light and we have hope of eternity in heaven one day. That's what we do. We, we show our, our love for him and our love for the rest of the world through our actions and our deeds. We, we give generously to things. We help people around us. We don't turn our back on the world around us. We don't turn our back on people who are, who are desperately saying, hey, that's, that's unreliable or unbelievable. No, we, we do everything we can to convince them, right, that this is, the, this is certain rescue, that this is the only way to be to, to live life in, in light and in openness. We've got to let our love and goodness gain us a voice and we give testimony throughout our lives and our words about who Jesus is and what he's done. And we faithfully testify that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the God-made flesh, our greatest hope for all of the world, that he is the way, the truth, and the light, and that no one will come to the Father except through him. I hope you believe that. Because that's the truth about who Jesus is. He is the way to the Father. And there is no other way. Let me pray for us.